Chapters four to six. Smith in the city. This is a LibriVox recording. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. This chapter is read by the Podchef. Podchef.motime.com. Smith in the city by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapters four to six. The city received Mike with the same aloofness. With which the more western portion of London had welcomed him on the previous day, nobody seemed to look at him. He was permitted to alight at St Paul's and make his way up Queen Victoria Street without any any demonstration. He followed the human stream till he reached the mansion house and eventually found himself at the massive building of the new Asiatic Bank Limited. The difficulty now was to know how to make an effective entrance. There was the bank. And here was he. How had he better set about breaking it to the authorities that he had positively arrived and was ready to start earning his four pounds ten per mensum? Inside, the bank seemed to be in a state of confusion. Men were moving about in an apparently irresolute manner. Nobody seemed actually to be working. As a matter of fact, the business of a bank does not start very early in the morning. Mike had arrived before things had really begun to move. As he stood near the doorway, one or two panting figures rushed up the steps and flung themselves at a large book which stood on the counter near the door. Mike was to come to know this book well. In it, if you were an employee of the New Asiatic Bank, you had to inscribe your name every morning. It was removed at ten sharp to the accountant's room, and if you reached the bank a certain number of times in the year too late to sign, bang went your bonus. After a while, things began to settle down. The stir and confusion gradually ceased. All down the length of the bank, figures could be seen seated on stools and writing hieroglyphics in large letters. A benevolent-looking man with spectacles and a straggling grey beard crossed the gangway close to where Mike was standing. Mike put the thing to him as man to man. "Could you tell me," he said, "what I'm supposed to do? I've just joined the bank." The benevolent man stopped and looked at him with a pair of mild blue eyes. "I think perhaps that your best plan would be to see the manager," he said. "Yes, I should certainly do that. He will tell you what the work you have to do. If you will permit me, I will show you the way." "It's awfully good of you," said Mike. He felt very grateful. After his experience of London, it was a pleasant change to find someone who really seemed to care. What happened to him? His heart warmed to the benevolent man. It feels strange to you, perhaps, at first, Mister Jackson. Mister Jackson, my name is Waller. I've been in the city some time, but I can still recall my first day. But one shakes down, one shakes down quite quickly. Here's the manager's room. If you go in, he will tell you what to do. Thanks awfully," said Mike. "Not at all." He ambled off on the quest which Mike had interrupted, turning as he went to bestow a mild smile of encouragement on the new arrival. There was something about Mr. Waller which reminded Mike pleasantly of the White Knight in *Alice Through the Looking Glass*. Mike knocked at the managerial door and went in. Two men were sitting at the table. The one facing the door was writing when Mike went in. He continued to write all the while he was in the room. Conversation between other people in his presence had apparently no interest for him, nor was it able to disturb him in any way. The other man was talking into a telephone. Mike waited till he had finished. Then he coughed. The man turned round. 
Mike thought, as he looked on his back and heard his voice, that something about his appearance or his way of speaking was familiar. He was right. The man in the chair was Mr. Bickersdyke, the cross-green pedestrian. These reunions are very awkward. Mike was frankly unequal to the situation. Smith, in his place, would have opened the conversation and relaxed the tension with some remark on the weather or the state of the crops. Mike merely stood wrapped in silence, as if in a garment. That the recognition was mutual was evident from Mr. Bickersdyke's look, but apart from this he gave no sign of having already had the pleasure of making Mike's acquaintance. He merely stared at him as if he were a blot on the arrangement of the furniture, and said, Well, the most difficult parts to play in real life, as well as on the stage, are those in which no business is arranged for the performer. It was all very well for Mr. Bickersdyke. He had been discovered sitting, but Mike had had to enter, and he wished now that there was something he could do instead of merely standing and speaking. I've come was the best speech he could think of. It was not a good speech. It was too sinister. He felt that even as he had said it. It was the sort of thing Mephistopheles would have to say to Faust by way of an opening conversation. But he was not sure either whether he ought not to have added, Sir. Apparently such subtleties of address were not necessary, for Mr. Bickersdyke did not start up and shout, This language to me? or anything of that kind. He merely said, Oh, and who are you? Jackson, said Mike. It was irritating, this assumption on Mr. Bickersdyke's part that they had never met before. Jackson, ah, uh, yes, you've joined the staff. Mike rather liked this way of putting it. It lent a certain dignity to the proceedings, making him feel like some important person for whose services there had been strenuous competition. He seemed to see the bank's directors being reassured by the chairman. I am happy to say, gentlemen, that our profits for the past year are three million six two two and a half pounds, and impressively, that we have finally succeeded in introducing Mr. Mike Jackson to, uh, in fact, um, to join the staff, at which frantic cheers from the chairman were joined. Yes, he said. Mr. Bickersdyke pressed a bell on the table beside him, and, picking up a pen, began to write. Of Mike he took no further notice, leaving that toy of fate standing stranded in the middle of the room. After a few minutes one of the men in fancy dress, whom Mike had seen hanging about the gangway, and whom he afterwards found to be messengers, appeared. Mr. Bickersdyke looked up. "'Ask Mr. Bannister to step this way,' he said. The messenger disappeared, and presently the door opened again to admit a shock-headed youth, with paper cuff protectors around his wrists. This is Mr. Jackson, a new member of the staff. He will take your place in the postage department. You will go into the cash department under Mr. Waller. Kindly show him what he has to do. Mike followed Mr. Bannister out. On the other side of the door, the shock-headed one became communicative. Phew, he said, mopping his brow. That's the sort of thing which gives me the pip. When William came and said old Beck wanted to see me, I said to him, William, me boy, my number's up. This is the sack. I made certain that Rosteter had run me in for something. He's been wanting for a chance to do it for weeks. Only I've been as good as gold and haven't given it him. I pity you going to the postage. There's one thing, though. If you can stick it out for about a month, you'll get through all right. Men are always leaving for the East, and then you get shunted on to into another department, and the next new man goes in the postage. 
That's the best of this place. It's not like one of those banks where you stay in London all your life. You only have three years here, and you get your orders, and you go off to one of the branches in the east, where you're the dickens of a big pot straight away, with a big screw and a dozen native johnnies under you. Bit of all right, that. I shan't get my orders for another two and a half years or more. Worse luck. Still, it's something to look forward to. Who's Rossiter? asked Mike. The head of the postage department. Fussy little brute. Won't leave you alone. Always trying to catch you on the hop. That's the one thing, though. The work in the postage is pretty simple. You can't make many mistakes if you're careful. It's mostly entering letters and stamping them. They turned in at the door in the counter and arrived at a desk which ran parallel to the gangway. There was a high rack running along it on which were several ledgers. Tall green shaded electric lamps gave it a rather cosy look. As they reached the desk, a little man with short black whiskers buzzed out from behind a glass screen where there was another desk. Where have you been, Bannister? Where have you been? You must not leave your work in this way. There are several letters waiting to be entered. Where have you been? Mr. Bickersdyke sent for me, said Bannister, with the calm triumph of one who trumps an ace. Oh, ah, oh, yes, well, very well, I see. But get to work, get to work. Who is this? This is a new man. He's taking my place. I've been moved on to the cash. Oh, ah, is your name Smith? asked Mr. Rossiter, turning to Mike. Mike corrected the rash guess and gave his name. It struck him as a curious coincidence that he should be asked if his name was Smith, of all others. Not that it's an uncommon name. Mr. Bickersdyke told me to expect a Mr. Smith. Well, well, perhaps there are two new men, because Mr. Bickersdyke knows we're short-handed in this department. But, but come along, Bannister, come along. Show Jackson what he has to do. We must get on. There's no time to waste. He buzzed back to his lair. Bannister grinned at Mike. He was a cheerful youth. His normal expression was a grin. Well, that's a sample of Rossiter, he said. You'd think from the fuss he's made that the business of this place was at a standstill till we got to work. Perfect rot. There's never anything to do here till after lunch, except checking the stamps and petty cash, and I've done that ages ago. There are three letters. You may as well enter them. It all looks like work. But you'll find the best way is to wait till you get a couple of dozen or so, and then work them off in a batch. But if you see Rossiter about, then start stamping something, or writing something, or run you in for neglecting your job. He's a nut, and I'm jolly glad I'm under old Waller now. He's the pick of the bunch. The other heads of departments are all nuts, and Bickerdyke the nuttiest of the lot. Now look here, this is all you've got to do. I'll just show you, and then you can manage for yourself. I'll have to be shunting off to my own work in a minute. Chapter Five: The Other Man. As Bannister had said, the work in the postage department was not intricate. There was nothing much to do except enter and stamp letters, and at intervals take them down to the post office at the end of the street. The nature of the work gave Mike plenty of time for reflection. His thoughts became gloomy again, as this was very far removed from the life to which he had looked forward. There are some people who take naturally to the life of commerce. Mike was not one of these. To him, the restraint of the business was irksome. He had been used to an open-air life and a life, in its way, of excitement. He gathered that he would be not be free till five o'clock, and that on the following day, he would come at ten and go at five, and the same every day except Saturdays and Sundays, all the year round, with ten days holiday. The monotony of the prospect appalled him. He was not old enough to know what a narcotic is habit, and that one can become attached to and interested in the most un. 
promising jobs. He worked away dismally at his letters till he had at last finished them. There was nothing to do except sit and wait for more. He looked through the letters he had stamped and re-read the addresses. Some of them were directed to people living in the country, one to a house which he knew quite well near to his own home in Shropshire. It made him homesick, conjuring up visions of shady gardens and country sounds and smells, and the silver severn gleaming in the distance through the trees. About now, if he were not in this dismal place, he would be lying in the shade in the garden with a book, or wandering down to the river to boat or bathe. That envelope addressed to the man in Shropshire gave him the worst moment he had experienced that day. The time crept slowly on to one o'clock. At two minutes past, Mike awoke from a daydream to find Mr. Waller standing by his side. The cashier had his hat on. "'I wonder,' said Mr. Waller, "'if you'd care to come out to lunch. I generally go about this time, and Mr. Roster, I know, doesn't go out till two. I thought perhaps that, being unused to the city, you might have uh, difficulty finding your way about.' "'It's awfully good of you,' said Mike. "'I should like to.' The other led the way through the streets and down obscure alleys till they came to a chop-house. Here one could have the doubtful pleasure of seeing one's chop in various stages of evolution. Mr. Waller ordered lunch with the care of one to whom lunch is no slight matter. Few workers in the city do regard lunch as a trivial affair. It is the keynote of their day. It is an oasis in a desert of ink and ledgers. Conversation in the city office deals in the morning with what one is going to have for lunch, and in the afternoon with what one has had for lunch. At intervals during the meal Mr. Waller talked. Mike was content to listen. There was something soothing about the grey-bearded one. "'What sort of man is Mr. Bickersdyke?' asked Mike. "'A very able man. A very able man indeed. I'm afraid he's not popular in the office. A little inclined, perhaps, to be hard on mistakes.' I can remember the time when he was quite different. He and I were fellow clerks in Morton Blatherwick's. He got on better than I did. A great fellow for getting on. They say he is to be the unionist candidate for Kenningford when the time comes. A great worker, but perhaps not quite the sort of man to be generally popular in an office. He's a blighter, was Mike's verdict. Mr. Waller made no comment. Mike was to learn later that the manager and the cashier, despite the fact that they had been together in less prosperous days, or perhaps because of it, were not on very good terms. Mr. Bickersdyke was a man of strong prejudices, and he disliked the cashier, whom he looked down upon as one who had climbed to a lower rung of the ladder than he himself had reached. As the hands of the chop-house clock reached a quarter to two, Mr. Waller rose and led the way back to the office, where they parted for their respective desks. Gratitude for any good turn done to him was a leading characteristic of Mike's nature, and he felt genuinely grateful to the cashier for troubling to seek him out and to be friendly to him. His three-quarters of an hour absence had led to the accumulation of a small pile of letters on his desk. He sat down and began to work them off. The addresses continued to exercise a fascination for him. He was miles away from the office, speculating on what sort of man J. B. Garside, Esquire, was, and whether he had had a good time at his house in Worcestershire, when someone tapped him on the shoulder. He looked up. Standing by his side, immaculately dressed as ever, with his eyeglass fixed and a gentle smile on his face, was Smith. Mike stared. "'Commerce,' said Smith, as he drew off his lavender gloves, "'has claimed me for her own.' Comrade of old, I, too, have joined this blighted institution. 
As he spoke there was a whirring noise in the immediate neighbourhood, and Mr. Rossiter buzzed out from his den with the esprit and animation of a clockwork toy. "'Who's here?' said Smith, with interest, removing his eyeglass, polishing it, and replacing it in his eye. "'Mr. Jackson!' exclaimed Mr. Rossiter. "'I really must ask you to be good enough to come in from your lunch at the proper time. It was fully seven minutes to two when you returned, and—' "'That little more,' sighed Smith. "'And how much is it?' "'Who are you?' snapped Mr. Rossiter, turning on him. "'I shall be delighted, comrade,' Rossiter said Mike aside. "'Comrade Rossiter, I shall be delighted to furnish you with the particulars of my family history. "'As follows. "'Soon after the Norman conquest, a certain Sieur de Smith grew tired of work, "'a family failing, alas, and settled down in this country to live peacefully "'for the remainder of his life on what he could extract from the local peasantry.' He may be described as the founder of the family which ultimately culminated in me. Passing on, uh, Mr. Rossiter refused to pass on. What are you doing here? What have you come for? Work, said Smith with simple dignity. I am now a member of the staff of this bank. Its interests are my interests. Smith, the individual, ceases to exist, and there springs into being Smith, the cog in the wheel of the new Asiatic bank. Smith, the link in the bank's chain, Smith, the worker. I shall not spare myself, he proceeded earnestly. I shall toil with the accumulated energy of one who, up till now, has only known what work is like from hearsay. What is that form sitting on the steps of the bank in the morning, waiting eagerly for the place to open? It is the form of Smith, the worker. Who is that haggard-drawn face which bends over a ledger, long after the other toilers have spled blithely westward to dine at Lyon's popular café. It's the face of Smith, the worker. I began Mr. Rossiter. I tell you, continued Smith, waving aside the interruption, tapping the head of the department rhythmically in the region of the second waistcoat button with a long finger, I tell you, Comrade Rossiter, that you have got hold of a good man. You and I together, not forgetting Comrade Jackson, the pet of the smart set, will toil early and late till we boost up this postage department into a shining model of what a postage department should be like. What that is at present, I do not know. However, Excursion trains will be run from distant shires to see this postage department. American visitors to London will do it before going on to the tower. And now, he broke off with a crisp, business-like intonation, I must ask you to excuse me. Much as I have enjoyed this little chat, I fear it now must cease. The time has come to work. Our trade rivals are getting ahead of us. The whisper goes round, Rossiter and Smith are talking, not working, and other firms prepare to pinch our business. Let me work. Two minutes later, Mr. Rossiter was sitting at his desk with a dazed expression, while Smith, perched gracefully on a stool, entered figures in a ledger. Chapter 6. Smith Explains For the space of about twenty-five minutes, Smith sat in silence, concentrated on his ledger, the picture of the model bank clerk. Then he flung down his pen, slid from his stool with a satisfied sigh, and dusted his waistcoat. A commercial crisis, he said, has passed. The job of work which Comrade Rossiter indicated for me has been completed with masterly skill. The period of anxiety is over. The bank ceases to totter. Are you busy, Comrade Jackson, or shall we chat a while? Mike was not busy. He had worked off the last batch of letters, and there was nothing to do but wait for the next, or, happy thought, to take the present batch down to the post, and so get out into the sunshine and fresh air for a short time. "'I rather think I'll nip down to the post-office,' said he. 
You couldn't come too, I suppose. On the contrary, said Smith, I could and will. A stroll will just restore those tissues which the grueling work of the last half hour has wasted away. It's a fearful strain, this commercial toil. Let us trickle down to the post office. I will leave my hat and gloves as a guarantee of good faith. The cry will go round, Smith has gone. Some rival institution has kidnapped him. Then they will see my hat. He built up a foundation of ledgers, planted a long ruler in the middle, and hung his hat on it. Oh, my gloves! He stuck two pens in the desk and hung a lavender glove on each. And they will sink back swooning with relief. The awful suspense will be over. They will say, No, he has not gone permanently. Smith will return. When the fields are white with daisies, he'll return. And now, Comrade Jackson, lead me to this picturesque little post office of yours. Of which I have heard so much. Mike picked up the long basket into which he had thrown the letters after entering the addresses in his ledger, and they moved off down the aisle. No movement came from Mr. Rossiter's lair. Its energetic occupant was hard at work. They could just see the part of his hunched up back. I wish Comrade Downing could see us now, said Smith. He always set us down as mere idlers, triflers, butterflies. It would be a wholesome corrective for him to watch us perspiring like this in the cause of commerce. You haven't told me yet what on earth you're doing here, said Mike. I thought you were going to go to the varsity. Why the dickens are you in a bank? Your potter hasn't lost his money, has he? No, there's still a tolerable supply of doubloons in the old oak chest. Mine is a painful story. It always is, said Mike. You're very right, Comrade Jackson. I am the victim of fate. Ah, so you put the little chaps in there, do you? He said, as Mike, reaching the post office, began to bundle the letters into the box. You seem to have grasped your duties with admirable promptitude. It's the same with me. I fancy we are both men of commerce. In a few years we shall be pinching Comrade Bickersdyke's job. And talking of Comrade B brings me back to my painful story. But I shall never have time to tell you it on a walk back to work. Uh, let us drift aside into this tea shop. We can order a buckwheat cake or a butternut or some equally succulent, and carefully refraining from consuming these dainties, I will tell you all. Right-o, said Mike. When last I saw you, resumed Smith, hanging Mike's basket on the hat stand and ordering two portions of porridge, you may remember that a serious crisis in my affairs had arrived. My father, inflamed with the idea of commerce, had invited Comrade Bickersdyke. When did you know he was manager here? asked Mike. At an early date. I have my spies everywhere. However, my potter invited Comrade Bickersdyke to our house for the weekend. Things turned out rather unfortunately. Comrade B resented my purely altruistic efforts to improve him mentally and morally. Indeed, on one occasion he went so far as to call me an impudent young cub, and to add that he wished he had me under him in his bank, where he asserted he would knock some nonsense out of me. All very painful, I tell you. Comrade Jackson, for the moment it reduced my delicately vibrating ganglions to a mere frazzle. Recovering myself, I made a few blithe remarks, and then we parted. I cannot say whether we parted friends, but, at any rate, I bore him no ill will. I was still determined to make him a credit to me. My feelings towards him were those of some kindly father to his prodigal son, but he, if I may say so, was fairly on the hop, and when my pater, after dinner the same night, played on into his hands by mentioning that he thought I ought to plunge into a career of commerce, Comrade B was, I gather, all over him. 
offered to make a vacancy for me in the bank, and to take me on at once. My pater, feeling that this was the real hustle, which he admired so much, had me in, stated his case, and said in effect, How do we go? I intimated that Comrade Bickersdyke was my greatest chum on earth, so the thing was fixed up, and here I am. But you're not getting on with your porridge, Comrade Jackson. Perhaps you don't care for porridge. Would you like a Finian haddock instead, or, or a piece of shortbread? You have only to say the word. It seems to me, said Mike gloomily, that we're in for a pretty rotten time at this valley bank. If Bickersdyke's got his knife into us, he can make it jolly warm for us. He's got his knife into me. All right about that walking across the screen business. True, said Smith, to a certain extent. It is an undoubted fact that Comrade Bickersdyke will have a jolly good try at making life a nuisance to us. But, on the other hand, I propose, so far as is in me lies, to make things moderately unrestful for him here and there. But you can't, objected Mike. What I mean to say is, it isn't like school. If you wanted to score off a master at school, you could always rag and so on. But here you can't. How can you rag a man who's sitting all day in a room of his own while you're sweating away at a desk at the other end of the building? You put the case with admirable clearness, Comrade Jackson, said Smith approvingly. At the hard-headed common-sense business you sneak the biscuit every time, with ridiculous case. But you do not know all. I do not propose to do a thing in the bank except work. I shall be a model as far as work goes. I shall be flawless. I shall bound to do Comrade Rossiter's bidding like a highly trained performing dog. It's outside the bank, when I've staggered away dazed with toil, that I shall resume my attention to the education of Comrade Bickersdyke. But dash it all, how can you? You won't see him. He'll go off home or to his club or... Smith tapped him earnestly on the chest. There, Comrade Jackson, he said. You have hit the bull's eye, rung the bell, gathered in the cigar or coconut according to choice. He will go off to his club, and I shall do precisely the same. How do you mean? It's in this way. My father, as you may have noticed during your stay at our stately home of England, is a man of warm, impulsive character. He does not always do things as other people would do them. He has his own methods. Thus, he sent me into the city to do the hard-working bank clerk act, but at the same time he's allowing me just as large an allowance as he would have given me if I had gone off to varsity. Moreover, while I was still at Eton, he put my name up for his clubs, the senior conservative for other, among others. My potter belongs to four clubs altogether, and in course of time, when my name comes up for election, I shall do the same. Meanwhile, I belong to the one, the senior conservative. It's a bigger club than the others, and your name comes up for election sooner. About the middle of last month, a great yell of joy made the West End of London shake like a jelly. The three thousand members of the senior conservative had just learned that I had been elected. Smith paused and ate some porridge. I wonder why they call this porridge, he observed with mild interest. It would be far more manly and straightforward for them to give its real name. To resume. I have gleaned from casual chit-chat with my father that Comrade Bickersdyke also infests the senior conservative. You might think that that would make me, seeing how particular I am about who I mix with, avoid the club. Error. I shall go there every day. If Comrade Bickersdyke wishes to amend any little traits in my character, of which he may disapprove, he shall never say that I did not give him the opportunity. I shall mix freely with Comrade Bickersdyke at the Senior Conservative Club. I shall be his constant companion. I shall, in short, haunt the man. 
by these strenuous means I shall, as it were, get a bit of my own back. And now, said Smith, rising, it might be as well, perhaps, to return to the bank and resume our commercial duties. I don't know how long you are supposed to be allowed for your little trips to and from the post office, but, seeing that the distance is about thirty yards, I should say at a venture not more than half an hour, which is exactly the space of time which has flitted by since we started out on this important expedition. Your devotion to porridge, Comrade Jackson, has led us to our spending about twenty-five minutes in this hostelry. Great Scott, said Mike, there'll be a row. Ah, some slight temporary breeze, perhaps, said Smith, annoying to men of culture and refinement, but not lasting. My only fear is lest we may have worried Comrade Rossiter at all. I regard Comrade Rossiter as an elder brother, and would not cause him a moment's heart-burning for worlds. However, we shall soon know, he added, as they passed into the bank and walked up the aisle, for there is Comrade Rossiter waiting to receive us in person. The little head of the postage department was moving restlessly about in the neighborhood of Smith and Mike's desk. Am I mistaken, said Smith to Mike, or is it the merest suspicion of a worried look on our chief's face? It seems to me that there is the slightest soupçon of shadow about that broad, calm brow. Thus ends chapter 4 to 6 of Smith in the City by P. G. Woodhouse.